Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 112 of Dominaria's Judgment, a mostly weekly, mostly constructed magic podcast. Uh, I'm Dom Harvey. I'm here with Ari Lax. And after our break last week, where we were intending to just go over a bunch of the Wilds of Aldrain previews we had at that time, we now are back with the four spoiler uh, before us. And so going to dive into all of that. And I guess the 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 one sentence verdict that I'll introduce this with is I, I like it could have been more dangerous and it could have been more exciting, and I'm not sure which framing of those is better for the set, really. Yeah, I mean, I will be the defender of this set, where I think that the there are a huge number of cards that I just, like, I wrote this huge list of things that are like, oh, this is an above-average power level card, and that list is massive. But, like, it's not like Last Eldraine, where you're like, what the heck is this card doing? What? Why does this exist? There's not a lot of that. There's just a lot of, like you know, C plus B minus cards when you're really looking for that A. And I don't really know where that is in this set, but we'll talk through and maybe figure out if there's one that we uh, missed. Yeah, I would say most sets, when we we come in here for this preview episode or preview episodes, if the set is that deep, there are a few cards which we know we're going to spend a lot of time talking about, and then a few others uh, here and there. This set, I'm not even sure what that first badge of cards would be be necessarily is it's a lot of as you said solid tier two cards which i look at the spoiler i i read it i maybe have to read it again because it's a lot of words and i think okay that's kind of cool and then i just move on to something else and i never really you know i i don't have any object permanence where a lot of these cards are concerned yeah that object permanence is a good way to describe this because my caveat at the top of the show note is i make no promises that a commander card didn't end up on this list because it feels impossible to tell which like more so than usual, just, like, they really just blur together in terms of, like, if one of these adventures was in the commander set and not in the normal set, I'm not sure I could pick it out of a hat, like, which one is which. Yeah, there are some sets as well where you're not too enthusiastic about the main set, but the commander set is stock full of goodies for Legacy or Cube or, I, I guess, Commander, if you're uh, one of the uh, commander perverts out there. But uh, this set, e- even that kind of a supplementary set alongside it seemed pretty tame, all things considered. And yeah, if you scrubbed out the set symbols from the bottom left and ran some of those cards side by side, not sure I could tell you uh, which one of those they're meant to be in. So this might be... I'm trying to think of one of the other sets we had a similar verdict for, and part of the issue with a set being like that is it kind of blurs together and it's not that memorable, and so it's actually hard to come up with examples uh, here in the moment. But I guess... I was going to say Dominaria United, but even that one has a, a few cards which we're going to be talking about for a few years to come, right? Uh, but there, there have been sets in there where maybe once you skim off uh, the top few cards, then everything else just kind of is one big mush. Yeah, I mean, it's... I don't think you can say that, because Dominaria United and Streets of New Capena are two sets that have a lot of that mush, but I think there's more of it here. And it's also worth noting that when we were first discussing those sets... I don't think we peg Shouldred and Ledger Shredder as cards we would be talking about for a very long time. Like, no. those are kinds of things that just accidentally ended up punching ahead of their weight class. So just with the raw number of cards that are in that mix, maybe there's something that, you know, th- you know, three weeks down the line, we're like, oh, it's so obvious. How did we not see that Hearth Elemental did this thing or this other thing? Um, but there, there's nothing, like, blatant in your face in this set the way that... Um, the way that we've had a couple times over the last few years. 
Yeah, I, I guess let's talk about what it means for this set to be a good Eldraine set, because <laughs> Throne of Eldraine, uh, for better and for worse, mostly for worse, is a very hard act to follow, uh, and I'm not sure what it means to try to channel the nostalgia for a set that firstly was less than four years ago. So for most people playing Magic at this point, this is solidly within the lifespan of when they started playing. Certainly for anyone who is enfranchised enough to be listening to a podcast like this, like they probably have very vivid memories of Throne of Eldraine and they, they probably wish those were much less vivid and they could forget about the set if they wanted. Uh, but contrast that with something like Kamigawa Neon Dynasty where I started playing in the original Kamigawa, that set holds a special place uh, in my heart. And so the idea of coming back after so long, I, I had mixed feelings about it, was was keen but nervous to see how it would play out. I think they, they mostly nailed the execution there. But I think the criteria for success for a reboot like that, much different from when you have a set which won a few friends and a lot of enemies the first time around and i'm not sure like you you don't want to do throne of eldraine again but then once you do a set like this even if this is what you're meant to be doing it's going to seem underwhelming by comparison because you're on eldraine and if this was on any other plane skinned in any other way maybe it would just seem like a normal magic set yeah i think that there's some other aspects like so um one thing that i pointed out on twitter that makes i think it is easier to do that with eldraine than with other sets because the outliers in Eldraine are just, like, random cards. Like, Once Upon a Time has nothing to do with the rest of the set. Oko, I get, like, I get, whatever. Oko says food on it, but it really has nothing to do with the rest of the set. Like, the ten most egregious cards from Eldraine, outside of maybe, like, Cauldron Familiar, are just really not related to anything else that's going on. Um, so, if you want to return to Eldraine, you get to return to a lot of the same mechanics in the world... But on the flip side of that, like, this set actually, it feels like it is um, blowing up and focusing on a narrow subset of what was in the previous Eldraine set. And part of that, I think, is just, like, flavor reasons of, like, oh, we blew up the monocolor courts. And part of it is design of, like, oh, gosh, we made 12 adamant cards and we cannot make another 12. There's just there's just no way to do it. Um, so, like... I will say that, like I said, that average power level being very high, one thing that is very persistent throughout the set is just, like, it's just all about game objects. Just every single card is a two-for-one. And if you look at the most recent set that's like that, that was Neon Dynasty. And that set is, like, extremely high power level if you just look at it now. So I think that it is, um, again, a case of a high average and, like, maybe a lower ceiling and a higher floor. I don't know, how much could you have predicted Fable? Yeah, a lot. Okay, never mind. So ignoring Fable, this set well, is on I, par with that. I, I mean, in theory, you could have predicted Fable. In practice, basically nobody predicted Fable. And that, that stands out as like a generational miss in terms of people's uh, card evaluation skills, myself very much included there. Uh, so maybe there are some lessons to take away there. But either way, uh, new frontiers in rectangle theory being broken uh, in this set, uh, hopefully. Speaking of uh, Adaman and uh, Commander cards, quickly, have you seen the one from the Commander set that is just called Throne of Eldraine? Um, yes, and I forgot. I saw it was from the Commander set, and I just erased it from my memory. <laughs> so this is a uh, Relic of Sauron meets Gilded Lotus, if those words mean anything to anyone. So it's five mana artifact. When it ETBs, you choose a color. You can tap to add four mana of the chosen color, but you can spend it only to cast monocolored spells of that color. And then it has three tab draw two cards 
spend only mana of the chosen color to activate this ability. So it's not quite an adamant card, but it's like floating around in that space, basically cramming the entire range of possible core adamant designs into a single card that gets locked away uh, in the commander set, but very clearly just in its name has a callback to the uh, the OG. Okay, yeah, that I had not really read the game text of that card. That is kind of cool, and I... The thing I appreciate about it is that they have managed to design an artifact for Vintage that Mishra's Workshop is actively horrific with. Not really sure, like, in theory, this is doing a lot of things you want of, like, it makes a lot of mana and, like, you can do other stuff, but you're just never going to play it in the format because of that. So I can kind of appreciate that, like, they're working in the realm of space of, like, anytime we produce an artifact like this, it's better if Mishra's Workshop doesn't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about the the mechanics of the set then and we'll, we'll start with the uh returning mechanics which we always knew were going to be in the set and there's some question over how much design space is there they're left with a lot of these really so let's start with adventure which you could describe reductively as just kicker by any other name or some new form of kicker turns out there are a lot of mechanics in magic that are just kicker by uh, another name adventure is one which I think the consensus coming out of Eldraine was we love the mechanic, but uh, ease up on some of these designs a little bit, and the actual adventure payoff cards, uh, the Edgewell Innkeepers and Lucky Clovers of the World, those are the ones that I think came in for the most criticism, but the the general idea of the the tier 1.5 adventure card, I, I think no complaints for the most part. Like I don't, don't see anyone out there complaining about stuff like uh, Giant Killer or Fae of Wishes. Um... I, maybe Fae of Wishes would be more of a complaint if Karn didn't exist, but yeah, I agree. I think the there are no Bone Crusher Giants in this set, but the average uh, adventure card is better than the like average in Throne of Eldraine. Like I think that well, uh, Ari, there is a Bone Crusher Giant in the set. It's just it's Bone Crusher Giant, except instead of a uh, three mana four three, which when you target it with a spell, you have to pay two. It's instead some five mana red Mythic Enchantment that doesn't do anything. Yeah, those are great. Uh, I mean, like, even if you look at, like, which adventure do you think has the most efficient creature on it? Is it the dragon? I don't even think that card's good. I, you could say some of that about, for example, Bonecrusher Giant, right? Where just as a three drop, uh, four, three for three with a little kind of pseudo ward or something, not setting the world on fire. And also two mana for two damage, also not great. But in a package where both halves curve into each other neatly, uh, and you staple them together, you get a decent impression of a Flame Tongue Carvu, Fire Rim, something like that. Like, that is more than some of its parts. I think the issue with, and maybe it's a good problem to have for a lot of the adventures in this set, is the two halves just don't really fit together as cleanly as the original. So, you know, with Brazen Barra even, that curve of, yeah, I'll pay two mana at some point, bounce your thing, and then I just have this this threat lurking there, ready to come in on any turn where you didn't force me to spend my mana, or Love Struck Beast, of course, where you you kind of need both halves of that card to link up, but when they do, then that curve of yep, hearts to die on turn one into Love Struck Beast on turn three, hopefully something good in between, it's just a little uh, oppressive to anyone hoping to actually like attack on the ground. With this set, I don't even know which cards try to exhibit that same problem. I, I, I It wouldn't shock me if uh, that initial set of poster children for the adventure mechanic was very consciously designed away from if that makes sense when going for for this batch yeah i mean if you look at it there's really like one creature that is a good rate and has an adventure that impacts the board and that's scalding viper that's the one that's basically brazen borrower with a different creature on it and it's just like a slightly i'd say lower impact creature maybe you could count the white virtue in that but it's close 
Yeah, and you have, I think, more adventures in the adventure mechanic now. So that virtue cycle where it's uh, a cheap instant or sorcery on one end and then some big enchantment on the other. Uh, the black one actually is a good example because the removal spell there, uh, uh, minus three, minus three to something, you gain three. Uh, that is a very good defensive card against a lot of conventional aggro decks, right? You've seen stuff like Moment of Craving, Parasitic Grasp, uh, be at least good cyborg cards, if not even main deck cards uh, in, in various formats. But then, like, did, we are just so far past the point where Dead Snell is a good card, and that, that breaks my heart as someone who grew up when that was, like, the tactic that you were building towards in these control mirrors. You know, on, on turn 14, you would find a way to fall through your Dead Snell, and that was going to win you the game. That's just not the world we live in anymore. Um, and so I think a lot of these... Yeah, it's, it's kind of cool to have games which just you get to turn nine and both players have run out of cards somehow and you, you just shrug and play your dead as now. But I don't know how often that actually comes up. And that that big thing on the right can't be the thing you're working towards with this card. You really have to want whatever the cheap buyout is. And then maybe the other part comes along for the ride. Yeah, actually, that card I'm very high on. I think that the Debtor's Nell games are largely just at no cost to your functional early game. You just get to continue the game to a point where you have an end game in the game. Just like it just shows up and you have a card that will take over. The problem is I'm not... I think that the bigger issue with Debtor's Nell is that like I'm not sure how good Debtor's Nell would be these days. I mean, it's kind of weird where like Debtor's Nell is at its best in matchups where Last Gasp is at its worst. Uh, Last Gasp being the, like, minus three, minus three half of the card. So you're, it, I don't really know where this card is. Like, it offers something exciting, but I don't think both halves are exciting in most matchups these days. I guess maybe, like, picking off Blood Tithe Harvesters is really important, but we'll, we'll get to something around that later. Yeah, and then you have some more intriguing examples like Questing Druid. So this is the Quirion Dryad on one hand, and then a Reckless Impulse style effect on the other half. And I think this is a really intriguing card, but I I struggle to picture, at least in smaller formats, the kind of deck where you get to harness both sides of that effectively, and also your deck actually functions of what it tries to do. So the closest thing, and there's an explicit tie-in here, would be the Pier deck in Pioneer, where you have the uh, March of the Machines Aftermath Pier, when, you know, if you play a land or play a spell from Exile, you, you make a 1-1 Thopter, and then your Thopters have haste. And so that's a deck which actively wants as many Reckless Impulses as it can get its hands on, currently has the full 8 as well as Showdown of the Skulls to just tear through its deck. Um, and so the idea of a Reckless Impulse that mitigates the issue of what if i just have a bunch of impulses but don't have threats to pair them with like that sounds really appealing but then you try and just build a functional mana base with those cards and with this card and it just doesn't work even with the relatively good options that you have in pioneer these days it just doesn't really come together properly uh, and i worry that that's just going to be the case across the board and you know if you like as the formats gets uh, get larger you get better mana and better spells to pair it with, but then also now you're playing Quirion Dryad in a Orcish Bowmasters Renaissance format, and that's not going to work out so well. So I, there's this weird balancing act where as one half of the card looks more appealing, the other one just has less room to to uh, do its job, and I'm not sure if there is actually a sweet spot that it can land in. I, I think that this card also illustrates something that is in common with the, uh, the Viper that I mentioned earlier, which is that uh, the Quirion Dryad half of the card and the Reckless Impulse half of the card have, like, very specific windows of functionality where it's, 
it feels like a split card a lot of the time with this, where, like, if you are casting the Creator and Dryad half, you obviously don't get the Reckless Impulse. And if you're casting the Impulse half, it feels like you're, like, pricing yourself into using your mana on the things you flip. And then, like, by the time you deploy the Dryad half, it's not really going to be that impactful. So you're really getting, like, a card and a half out of it. And the same thing with the Viper, where it's like, oh, I bounced their thing and I played it a 2-1. Like, what what am I doing here? Where, like, when you love struck piece someone on, like, turn 4, you're like, oh, I got a 5-5 five, five and a 1-1. One, one. That's great. Or, like, when you Bone Crusher them in the mid-game, it's like, or at any point, like, it's just like, oh, either half of this card could be good at any point, And I will like to cast both halves, and I'm getting both of them most of the time. This is um, another, like, reference to past designs. It reminds me a bit of how Flashback was designed uh, in Innistrad, where they were very careful to, like, avoid clean Firebolt-style two-for-ones, where you just, like, naturally, like, Firebolt their thing and then Firebolt another thing later. Uh, like, if you compare it, it's like you have Firebolt as the common in one set and Silent Departure as the common in the other set, where it's like, you you don't ever get a spot where you just get, like, A and B, where they're both, like, a, it's a clean two-for-one. The other card that really stands out to me on this, like, the bad sequencing point is Cheeky House Mouse. This, I hate this card. I had a whole rant about this on the Discord, and I'll sum it up real fast, but, like, the idea is that, like, you'll play this card if you want a 2-1-for-1, but for a million turns of the game, you don't want to be spending your mana on the adventure, because that's just not spending a mana on another creature, and that's a bad hand. Uh, as you get to the mid-game, you're, like, reaching into spots where, like, you kind of want to get both halves, but, like, just, like, losing everything to a single removal spell is devastating. The evasion isn't even that good, and, like, you're, like, one of the things about these white decks that want a bunch of two ones is you're supposed to have so many creatures that you just don't care about any of them, so this idea of, like, sneaking anything relevant through just isn't there. Like, you're just gonna pair, like, this with an Ophidian. Like, that's just not how you build magic decks. Like, that's just not how it works these days. Um, so, like, it feels like you're, we're digging to find the ones that don't fall into that, uh, kind of weird pattern. Yeah, I would say the original Throne of Eldraine, it came at, not the start, but it was solidly in this era where it felt like every card came with some other card or had a bunch of other riders that, that came along with it. And so the adventure mechanic in a world where every card kind of begets more other cards and resources and stuff, it didn't feel as unique. And so now that we are very solidly in that world, uh, and that's just been the case for the past few years, I think the idea of uh just the the baseline adventure mechanic where if you you went back to like invasion block or the idea of yeah i have a on rate thing and i have this this cheeky bonus on the side great these days though that's just that's not special like every card has that so what are you doing that is going to keep my attention and a lot of for a lot of these cards it's it's not really there i'm, I'm not sure what the answer is i do want to point out a few of these that i am fairly high on um one of them is uh veiled shepherd this is the adventure that's like one in a white two two etb plus two plus two a creature like that's a like slightly undercosted yavis force mage but i think that one of the things that these adventures do is that because both halves of the card are relatively powerful um you are getting a reasonable uh costed creature in a deck that might just have like you know random one drops uh, like, imagine, you know, this is an Orzhov creature. You're probably going to be playing, like, Assorted One Drops. I, You know, just imagine your generic Orzhov deck, and there's probably some Doom Traveler variant in it, right? Um, the the other side being one black, neg one your opponent's entire team. Like, that is an exceptionally powerful card to accidentally have access to in your main deck, just if you are playing that deck. 
Yeah, and so in that case, it's maybe not so much uh, side A is generically good and side B is generically good. What if we stable them together? It's uh, side A is just about manageable and side B is not that great most of the time, but when it's good, it is phenomenal. And I just get to smuggle that into my deck without making the explicit deck building sacrifice of playing a, you know, Black Breath, Zealous Persecution style effect when I don't want it. Yeah, um... The other one of these that I'm I'm very high on is the Kellis Cell Sword. This is the like mostly fling plus uh like a two two that ETBs with a plus almost one counter for each creature that died under your control this turn. Um, just like one mana for like there's just this natural setup with this card where you just cast Furnace Rains and then it gives you the treasure to burn together and throw the thing you rained at your opponent. Like they die mm. right. Like that's just set up right there on top of a two-drop, that'll probably do some other stuff. That That is intriguing. Do you see this having a role in the the stock uh, Black Red Sacrifice deck in Pioneer then, or would you have to, to rejig it to, to make good use of this? Um, I So in that deck with access to Witch's Oven, like specifically this already cheap, already resilient sack outlet, I'm less interested, but I am interested in this allowing you to potentially extend to standard it might actually just be enough that you just have this card against the green decks and they just insta die if you assemble it maybe i'm underrating how much damage fling does in the format yeah certainly in standard but also increasingly in pioneer there's stuff like uh vodarwin thrill seeker as well uh and once you have enough of those effects you can pick your other creatures with those in mind and like work towards that as a very specific end game uh so i know you did not like this list at the time, and after trying it, I was much less on it too. But uh, when Stephen Dykeman had that black red sack list that had Dreadhorde Butcher and uh, Vordar and Thorseeker, maybe it's not that exact combination, but something like that, I could see this being a, a good part of. That's fair. I guess maybe touch on an adventure that is like a little different than the ones we talked about, which is Hearth Elemental, a card I like vaguely name drop at the start, but it's worth you know discussing the exact text of. So it's uh adventure is stoke genius one in red discard your hand then draw two uh so this is dangerous wager it's some avacyn restore card i don't really want to think about but the other side of this card is a uh six mana four five that costs x less to cast where x is the number of instant sorceries and adventure cards in your graveyard don't think that this is an immediate direct thing that shoves into any decks but the thing that got my wheels turning with this is that this is a cathartic reunion that also always leaves you with a creature to push towards Vengevine. So if there's like any reasonable creature to cast from your graveyard, this is a pretty aggressive way to set up a Dredgevine start. It, it is really cool there. I think the issue is, firstly, there's a massive difference between this costing one and costing two. And so you need to pad your graveyard with a ton of uh, cards that enable this. And so in your Vengevine deck, you presumably want to have enough other creatures and maybe it's just more hearth elementals but you need enough stuff that does that but then also enough instant sorceries or adventures i guess that you're actually getting the proper discount so that, that's a really tough balance to strike um and it probably can't look anything like the the current uh current dress decks with like knock amoebas and price amalgams and stuff like you you need the creature half of that column to actually work towards your venge vines i will say i'm surprised we haven't seen more or really any like fury vengevine decks yet uh and this could be a pretty nice step in that direction but um i think you also you want stuff you can cast from your graveyard post the stoke genius half of this card so if this is in your hand great you 
discard your hand, you dredge a bunch, you get this next exile, but then you need a, another creature somewhere that can fill that gap. And maybe that's like Oxyvagonus or something. I could see that fitting in there somewhere, but uh, it's it opens up a cool twist on the deck, but I think there are a lot of questions about how exactly you, you, you balance the numbers there. Yeah, I have not figured out exactly what cards need to be in the deck. And again, yeah, the the like, how do you have enough instants or adventures? But like, your your heart's desire is not returning event vine, so that that's kind of a dicey start. But there, it's just like one of those things that like this opens up a lot of new possibilities, even if the exact set of cards is not quite there. Oh, uh, so one idea is just to play another adventure in Merfolk Secret Keeper. So Echoes here of some of the like the, the Crabvine decks from uh, the original Throne of Aldrain era, where that that mills you and also offers a discount for this and then once it is in exile it is just a one drop that you can cast alongside this to get the ventrine back so maybe there's a critical mass of that kind of stuff now in your like weirdo is it ventrine deck uh that does sound very interesting to me that is a, a definitely good way to launder it and like also uh then you're starting moving down this road i guess like, Otherworldly Gaze is a pretty good card at this exact rule, and also more instants to end up in your graveyard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now I start thinking about, okay, so, like, Dragon's Face Channel is a one-drop that also triggers off my, like, adventure stuff. I get to surveil, and then once I'm dredging a bunch, it's just a 3-3 flyer, which is kind of nice, too. So, I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm getting too lost in the source here, but I... You, you've... You've made me want to open Cockatrice and build this now. Yeah, I mean, as long as we're not Murktide Region Vendrine, I think we're okay. But but why not? That, that that sounds great to me. Um, okay, again, you can take care of this after the podcast. <laughs> we'll continue on. Uh, are there any other adventures on the list of them that you want to bring up beyond like a cursory joke about how like surely this time Kellen will make Pioneer Hammer happen? All I'm saying is, uh, if the last few years have taught me anything, it's that the the modal DFCs and the Lord of the Rings land cyclers can really fudge the numbers in whatever direction you like. So maybe maybe there's something we can. Uh, can, can put together there but um kellen yeah it's not going to make pioneer hammer good like it it doesn't fix the structural issue of that deck which is you are a pretty interaction light kind of linear creature deck that needs a bunch of these moving parts working together it, it makes you better at doing that one thing but it doesn't stop you from dying to a wall of removal or having to face Rakdos sacrifice at any point or just mono green doing the thing and oh by the way they have card and so unless you have your cigar's aid your hammer doesn't do anything like the the issues of the deck do not start and end at oh i wish i had another good open the armory or something okay but what if you had another wave sister how do you feel about that i feel pretty good about that so uh, i did not cotton onto this at the time but if you are wired a certain way and a friend of the show and discord member uh xenowan certainly is you are constantly on the lookout for more glimpse of tomorrow enablers uh and so this one is uh the actual card itself is called decadent Sh- uh, or devouring sugarmore i say six six menace trample beginning of your upkeep you sacrifice an artifact enchantment or token so the the batching for the bargain mechanic if you don't you tap it fair enough but the adventure half uh, is one and a white uh, instant you create a 1-1 human token and a food token so this is a wave sifter of sorts which you can play to get two additional rectangles uh, on the board on turn two and is also pretty decent to flip into with your glimpse but it also is compatible with the glimpse restriction in a way that very few cards actually are and that's why you have to resort to wave sifter in the first place which no one wants to play wave sifter but you, you do what you have to do um and 
the other cascade decks that you can mess around with your your bone crusher giants and your force negations and whatever with glimpse you you need cards with a very specific role in mind and this actually fills that very specific role which you desperately needed some redundancy for Dude, I just want to eat this donut. Like, gummy worms and maraschino cherries sounds really good. I I don't know what's wrong with me, but it looks good. I, I think you have the brain worms, which are making you want to eat the uh, the, the scary donut worms. Okay, yeah, this, this is actually the whole problem. This is how it eats you. You're like, oh, that donut looks good, and then it just is the first one to bite. Yeah, many such cases. Uh, but th- th- this leads you in a very different direction from... The other three or four different glimpse decks, which mostly you find because Xenoan has won a challenge with him or something. So uh, we are not doing the Omniscience attracts uh, Emrakul stuff over here or the Risen Reef stuff over here or the Khan stuff. Like this is a whole new different approach to the deck, which gets enabled now. And this is uh, this this food package almost. So the original Throne of Eldraine food card outside of Oko, which, as you said, it, this is a food card in the same way that like Golgari Grave Troll as a plus one plus one counters card. Um, beyond that, the actual food cards there didn't make much of an impact. It kind of fell to Modern Horizons 2 and then Lord of the Rings all like linking up together to to make this work. But uh, with Tireless Provisioner, so this is uh, the three mana landfall creature where a land ETBs, you, you make a food or you make a treasure, uh, and Academy Manufacturer alongside uh, Generous End, which is also just part of your mana base now, um, and then some combination of uh, Peregrine Turk, the the new uh confectioner the three mana one which is a infinite combo with peregrine took once you have enough foods to start with and then other stuff like chatterfang you basically just make a ton of rectangles and then almost any conceivable set of flips which isn't just six lands or whatever just makes a bunch more rectangles and so you can channel that in whichever direction you want so if you need mana you've made a bunch of treasures during all of this with manufacturer and with other stuff and so or with your provisioner and so you get to re-roll with your next cascade spell and you have a bunch more rectangles than you started with um or you just parlay those rectangles into even more rectangles and then if you were making clues along the way with your wave sifter or with your manufacturer you just draw a bunch of cards uh you have food so if your life total is under pressure you just gain six and now it's not under pressure anymore uh so you just flood the board with stuff and eventually you have enough resources and enough ways to shuffle those into each other that you just you figure it out you don't even need some some big explicit end game finish to work towards you just make stuff and then you do stuff and you go from there yeah the the weirdest part of this might be i'm not sure confectioner is part of the main set and it's not a commander card i think it's part of the jumpstart set or Uh, wait what (laughs) yeah it, it I'm looking at this, I'm pretty sure the card number is, like, 314 out of, like, 2-whatever. It's just, like, in the bonus part of the set, and I, yeah, I don't even know. So this is the, the core vault or whatever of, of this tutorial drain? I think so. I, like, I I huh. have the card file open here, and I'm just literally not seeing it, but it exists, and it has the, the Wilds of Eldraine. It's not like a WOC or whatever they do, and they trick you, like... No, it's, it's just a normal card that just isn't an... I don't know. Whatever. This one does exist, and it can hurt you, whether that means you die to this infinite Peregrine Turk combo, or you are one of Xenoran's disciples, and you get baited into trying a glimpse food in a challenge at some point, and probably don't win the challenge because you're not Xenoran, and only he is. Yeah, it seems like this deck is also, like, probably 30% less likely to crash Magic Online, which is a really good upside. 
you you say that, but I I don't want to stress test that theory the hard way. Or maybe I do. I'll try and figure that one out uh, at some point. Are there any other food cards which you think are worth mentioning here? Because I, I was looking at just some generic modern Asmo decks uh, earlier today, and there's really nothing from the set that piqued my interest at all for those. And yeah, once you get into this exotic uh, glimpse of tomorrow space, there's, there's stuff you can do. But just in terms of, oh, I had some cool food deck with MH2 or something, I, I don't think that deck got any better. No, I, I was more interested in the other arbitrary cardboard unit offerings of the set. And also, as far as I can tell, the most prominent Asmo deck in the format has just cut Asmo. Uh, like, the Yargle deck is still showing up with four Yargles, zero Asmo, and four cookbooks. Yeah, I mean, that deck is is a hoot in its own right, but I, I was kind of thinking the OG, like, Doomwake in our podcast episode two years ago style Asmo deck might actually be ripe for a return, and maybe that's just me talking myself in circles, but topic for another day, maybe. Um, but let's dwell briefly on just the food mechanic as a whole, then, because uh, this was one of the, the low-key offenders, I think, of the original Eldraine set, and... If you're going back to Eldraine and there is a explicit food theme, then you can't really drop it and move away from it. But it it feels like it just has all the same issues it had the first time around. And uh, m- maybe it will play out differently in Limited. And if you have any thoughts there, then by all means go off. But uh, it feels like if you have a set with food as a theme, well, there are just issues with what the food mechanic is and does. And you're not going to be able to avoid those. Yeah, I don't like it any more here than I liked it there. It's just like... The mechanic is problematic in the sense that it either falls into one of two game states, which is it is just a goober that has no real game text and you just use it as a fungible unit of transfer. But the times where you are like generating and sacrificing multiple food to game and it matters are just terrible gameplay. Just like the game goes on. It never ends. If you have a repeatable way to generate food, which I think is the thing that they did this set is that they're just like aren't really ways to generate multiple food with a single card um it that so that was like the gilded goose issue right where like if you just play goose against burn they died because they either killed your goose and then you gained three life or they didn't kill your goose and you kept gaining three life um they just didn't print cards that do that which is fine but yeah like i don't know the mechanic's not great and i'm glad that they didn't uh yeah i mean you said there weren't a lot of food cards that did anything besides Oko, but like it's just was it just like Goose Cat Oven and like there's three. Yeah. No <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Like, yeah, this set uh did not produce any more goose cats or ovens, so I'm happy for it. I guess it did produce the Goose Mother, which is a card. I don't I don't really buy into what that card is attempting to do and being like, I don't know, like a three mana three three draw card or like a five mana five five vaguely draw two cards very slowly if my like five drop five five attacks twice i'm not buying into that i guess the one food card that i actually do like from the set is tough cookie and i think that that's Hmm. just largely like on the surface this is a like two mana two two game three which is a card that has seen reasonable play throughout the years like it's two mana two two make two game objects that's fine uh it can gain six in a pinch where it like blocks and sacks itself but also like it's just kind of like this weird threat that's just like, okay, so it's a 2-mana two 2-2 two, two on curve that applies a little pressure. Uh, in the mid-game, it's also just like a 4-4 four, four haste that brings additional power. And then also, like, if they kill it, you just have more random goobers for the next tough cookie you play. Like, I don't think we're in a 
Age of Magic where you reliably have these games where, like, you cast Tough Cookie on 8 mana. But if you cast Tough Cookie on 8 mana and have 2 foods, like, your opponent just, like, takes 2 4 fours to the face. I, I don't think this card is like great on the surface but like it's just like a lot of weird rate in a lot of weird places yeah i do love goose mother but that's only because goo wait gooses geese there we go are just inherently very comical creatures and so easy laughs you know just print anything with a goose on it and uh you're good to go i'm also partial to candy trail so this is the kind of witching well spinoff where uh, it's one cost artifact when it ETBs you scry to, and then it is a uh, food clue. So when you sacrifice it, you, you pay two and sack it, you uh, gain three life and draw a card. This, like, this is just the ultimate widget, right? Like, it is just, it, it smooths out your draw in the best possible way, but it maybe is too generically good at doing that. Like, what, whatever you're missing, it just kind of fills that gap very seamlessly to the point where it almost irons out the the natural variance that is maybe healthy to have in a game of limited or whatever? Uh, yeah, I I mean, I think that, I guess Lemmis has been a pauper favorite. I think this card is probably worse in that context, but I could be missing something where, like, you are trinket maging and recurring this in some weird fashion that I, I'm just not thinking about. Yeah, I, I guess Lemmis is good because you, you get the draw up front, and so... Once it's sitting there, it's just a thing. You can deadly dispute that. You can do whatever. Whereas with this, you you do have to make the choice whether you you sacrifice it manually to get those upsides or you you feed it to something else. But this is just a really nice card that I expect to see show up somewhere, um, even if the the use isn't obvious. You're right that I did forget the 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 cat oven stuff. In my defense, I don't know how much of that is. This is a food tie-in versus this is the game object which we have labeled food. And this is the thing that works with food. And it, it doesn't feel like, you know, you, you can do the, the life gain theme thing with food, which uh, they've done some of this in this set. They did some of it in the Eldraine Command stuff as well. But I think that that's maybe the issue yeah, that it's pointing towards, is that either your food theme deck is just your rectangles have the word food on them, and these other rectangles look for the cards that have the word food on them, or you are trying to do something with the life gain or the artifact sacrificing, but then... I'm not sure where that's really getting you. So it's hard to have a deck that really feels like this is based on food and not just, you know, cards and rectangles moving between zones. Yeah. Um, on one last uh, food note, Restless Cottage, the green-black uh, creature land, does make food. Are you excited about any of these? I, I'm i vaguely excited about the... Uh, the blue-green one, but I'm not huge on the rest of them. Which format are we talking about here? Because that, that is going to inform my answer. Um, Just, like, in general, I don't think they're delightful rates. Like, maybe I'm underestimating how good the Drain 2 on the white-black one ends up being, but, like, most of them feel, like, lower impact or relatively clunky. I think they, they could end up being uh, big role players in Standard. Once you get higher than that, though, it's, it's really tough to see, because... The, the initial Oath of the Gatewatch enemy color creature land cycle, those were never that impressive on raid, but they, they did the job and you pay them in standard. And in part, that was because you didn't really have many other good fixing options. So you just, you played what you had for the most part. But, um, once the mana in standard became great, right? Like once you got to the, the fetch land, BFZ land, uh, nonsense, you saw these lands just kind of getting worked out of decks. And a big part of that was, the, the downside of, I have this random wandering fumarole in a deck that 
has all of these specific mana requirements and also uh, has a bunch of other good mana things. It's like, when am I actually activating this thing? And was it even worth it? Am I glad that I spent four mana or whatever to, to do that? And with this cycle, some of them almost feel like explicit homages to the originals. Um, although notably, these are all much more aggressive or at least worse on defense so you look at the the black white one for example like yeah this kind of looks like a shambling vent but shambling vent was really good on defense in a way that this simply isn't and that that's going to be a big knock uh, against this cycle too that does also inform where you actually want to play them take the black green one the the rector's college that you mentioned line this one up against hive of the eye tyrant let's say it's not clear to me which one you would rather be activating a lot of the time i think often the answer is going to be hive just because the menace is going to be important and also, in your hypothetical black-green deck, well, you have so many good fixing options now, and the enemy colors in Pioneer have always had that, that you don't need the fixing here. And presumably your black mid-range deck wants to be casting Thought Season Push on 1, or maybe if you're doing some, like, Gilded Goose or Elvish Mystic thing. You e Either way, you want untapped mana on turn 1, and this is never going to be that, and that, I think, is a fatal blow for any format above standard. Well, I think that might be why I'm most excited about the blue-green one, because I think that blue-green kind of naturally fits in these tap lands the best, and this one is just like the best standalone threat. So the, the thing that's not obvious on first read is that it can give... Uh, so it's a it becomes a 5-mana, or it's 5-mana to activate, becomes a 5-5 five, five trample, and whenever it attacks, it turns another target creature into a 3-3 three, three until end of turn. But that can target their stuff too, so like, hmm. you, you just get to like shrink whatever they would block with and that was the thing i was kind of interested with in this one is that uh it is it's not quite a hall of the storm giants um but it is like in that same vein and fixes i it feels like it is at least playing in the right territory also you're like well when standard mana got good these disappeared how bad is like standard has painlands uh black leaf cliffs and like the shipwreck marsh cycle the mana is just great. Like, you don't need bad fixers. You also have... Also triumphs. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, you have the triumphs uh, competing with that too. Uh, the the blue-green one, I think, is the closest to punching above standard. Firstly, because it has the keyword big. Uh, All-important keyword there, as you mentioned. But also, I kind of want to attack with this and and beef up my Arboreal Grazer, which already is gigantic. I mean, amazing rate for a one-drop there. But this one can make it even bigger. So uh, that, that one uh, gets my mind worrying for sure. Back to the arbitrary game objects. For cards that are not making food, which ones are you excited about? Uh, so this is just rolls, or what, what other stuff are we focusing on here? <laughs> there are so many cards that produce game objects. There's, uh, so like, the Hopeless Nightmare, there's a couple cards like this that are like ETB effect, uh, that are like pseudo omens, mm. I guess. There's the, there's the white one that is, uh, ETB make a 2-2 two -two knight and then you can pay 2 and a white and sack it for no effect but when it dies you scry 2 um, I kind of dig Hopeless Nightmare out of that uh, that subset of cards uh, this is the black one that's like ETB your opponent loses 2 and discards a card and then it, it has the sack but like it's also just like a unit of cardboard that sits on the battlefield I don't know I, c I just want to cast Doom Foretold is that a bad thing? No, I, I thought Lightning was where you where you were going here, but Doom Foretold uh, did definitely piques my interest. Um, what, one of the, the low-key bangers from the original Eldraine was like, if if that set had been all Doom Foretold, great, not, knock it out of the park. 
When it's... <laughs> I, wait, hold on. Did you say if that set was all Smokestacks 2019, it would be great? I, I, I guess it would be better than what happened. I, I am a Smokestack pervert, but I think I would actually find a lot of uh, sympathy for that position, given what we actually got and said. Uh, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, yeah, I mean, there's that, and then there's the other the other black one drop I really like, the, the Hex Mage, the... 3-2, that ETBs puts a cursed roll token on one of your creatures, but, like, that's just two units of cardboard. It's a creature and an enchantment. Like, it's pretty easy. I I guess Scorn Blade Berserker went nowhere, but if you just put it on, like, any creature that is base power and toughness plus almost one counters, like, at, like I don't know, Stone Coil Serpent or whatever, it actually adds four power to the battlefield. That card's kind of wild. Yeah, I, maybe this is an extension of that general point about card advantage, which is, if... Uh, you had some cards which just made incidental rectangles and some which didn't, well then this is a unique upside which is worth investigating because it's kind of hard to eyeball its power at a glance and then maybe in practice these cards work out better than you expect. In a world where every card just makes a bunch of rectangles, it's even harder to cut through the fog and see which rectangles are actually important and which ones are just kind of there for show. Um, And that's going to be a puzzle which... Certainly going into the limited format, I'm going to try and have to figure out. Let's discuss the roles quickly then, because I think this is mainly a limited thing which might bleed over into standard, but basically these are token auras which get created and get put on a creature, and then each creature can only have one individual role, and so they're like... uh, Well, no, no, no. It can have one role per yes. player. So a, a creature can be a wicked cursed creature if your opponent curses. Yes, no, not quite a local world enchantments, but close enough. We'll go with that. Um, and so, yeah, you you end up like replacing these roles. And then I guess that helps you simplify things a bit because you don't have to work out, okay, well, this creature has three different roles on it. So what's its printed parent toughness? And now what are its actual uh, stats? Uh, but there's still a lot of just onboard complexity that this adds that you have to figure out and to me this feels like how you get to the density of enchantments or specifically auras that you need to do that kind of theme for a limited set um without just going full theros or whatever and, and making that the sole focus the one that kind of gets me is the young hero role because it's just such a weird like it triggers off of toughness on attack and like also is the only one that doesn't inherently have something that like plus ones or turns into a one one that one is just so out of place i don't really understand it the other ones i can kind of get my head around yeah i'm not sure if when you read these cards so uh just thinking about uh charming scoundrel let's say so this is the the one one haste when it utbs you choose either uh discard a card draw a card create a treasure or create a wicked roll token that's a cool card in its own right expect to see that one show up in, in a bunch of places but if this had the Wicked Roll token text written out on it instead, how would I... Like, would that make it easier to understand now? And which wording would I rather have six months from now when presumably I am more familiar with what the individual roles uh, actually do? You would probably have the one that spells it out because you would realize a lot faster that this is just tricking you into playing Wily Goblin in 2023. I, I mean, that's world's competitor, Wily Goblin to you, Ari. Uh, it it sure did compete in a world championship. (laughs) And and may do so again uh, in a few short weeks, uh, coming to a a Twitch stream near you. 
I have no control over your life, but I would not make that decision. That, that's not me leaking my alpha or anything. That's just, you, you know, leaving that possibility open. Uh, there are 110 people involved, and so one of them might register this card. Okay, what about a different uh, game object to drop, and that's Tangled Colony? This is the uh, two mana 3-2 that can't block, and uh, when it dies, it makes a bunch of rats equal to the amount of damage it was dealt that turn. Um this just kind of caught my eye as, like, a way to accidentally create a Boros Reckoner situation. I, I do love any and all uh, Boros Reckoners, uh, Flumps, or anything of that nature. I, I'm not sure what the, the Blasphemous Act in that uh, analogy is here. Um, and I think there's a big difference between you assemble this thing which just kind of one-hit hairs them out of nowhere, and uh, doing that where your payoff is i just make a bunch of stuff which can in turn just get swept away again or obsoleted on the ground uh and in general the slightly aggressively started black two drops you know the the, the one in a black three two with some other ability those have really not landed much in standard i guess tenacious underdog is the closest thing to an exception but even that card is kind of working its way out of the the black mid-range direction standard at the moment so i i'm not really optimistic about this one Unless the, the rat tribal thing takes off, but uh, even less optimistic about that. Okay, no, you've convinced me. All you had to say was, like, overstatted black creature with marginal upside. Like, it's just a trap. Like, this is not the Hex Mage where, like, you are producing something, like, weirdly and uniquely above rate, and it's, like, very obvious once you start looking at it. Like, this is just, like, it's a 3-2 for 2, and sometimes it persists. Okay, never mind. Continue on. Yes. Uh, so, any other uh, rectangle adjacent cards that you wanted to to highlight here? Um, I guess maybe we can move into like the weird one-offs of like up the beanstalk. Is that card rectangle adjacent? So th this one is weird. This is one in a green. When it ETBs, or when you cast a spell with mana value five or more, you draw a card. And this one has eh, there's some attention on it in standard I, exactly anurak is excited about this for legacy i think and then mostly the attention here is on modern where uh the obvious application is where we have all of these evoke elementals which in practice cost zero or sometimes they cost five when you have uh this omnath fetchland sequence but either way these trigger your uh other beanstalk and so you can imagine some builder four color with these and, and leyline binding just just going off uh and drawing three or four cards with a single other beanstalk over the course of a game and if you ever have multiple copies well now you're in that that risen reef kind of situation where you're just churning through your deck uh, over the course of a turn i think like the the floor here is much higher because th there's a bunch of enablers like this the takazia's welcomes and stuff like that where if you do this thing you draw a card and maybe you only get to do this once per turn but to even get that initial card back you have to do the thing once and then by the time you've done the thing again but now you've slowly unlocked a divination, I guess, and it's, it's only once you get to the third or even the fourth trigger where you really start to get somewhere. Um, and with this, you, well, you immediately just get the card back, so that's great. And then if you have a way to, to flicker this, uh, can't do the Yorion thing in modern anymore, but hey, Legacy or Pioneer, maybe, um, then there's some application there. But then also, you know, you, you get the initial card up front, which, if that's helping you hit your third land drop, great. Maybe it's finding the the five drop that you're going to pair with this a few turns from now. Like you, you get a card back, and then down the line, your uh, your investment pays off, and you get another card. Like that's a pretty good rate of return for a two mana card. Um, so, I think that it's worth looking at this. I wouldn't go out of my way to 
cram these cards I wouldn't want otherwise in my deck just to keep triggering this thing. I think that would be a, a classic deck body mistake, but the, the this doesn't ask too much of you. Like if if you had to play four fury, four solitude, four binding, I think that would be a cost, especially in a world where like the the heads up four color players at the PT just didn't have four solitude. They recognized that card was kind of a sacred cow at this point. Um some of them had a bunch of furies instead, but even that card is places kind of up in the air. Uh I don't think you can build around this necessarily, but if you are already built around it by accident, yeah, just uh, try it and see how it goes. Yeah, I think that people are wrongly comparing this to Risen Reef for a couple reasons. One is that I think a big part of Reef is that it triggered off of Omnath and it double triggered off future Reefs. This does not explosively stack immediately in quite the same way as multiple Reefs. Um, and then there's also the fact that, like, Part of the reason Risen Reef no longer exists is because of Bowmasters, and this card is also just like heinous against Bowmasters. Like you, mm. I, yeah, you're not really getting ahead of the curve on that exchange. I think the other thing as well in Modern is that these these cards, which only offer card advantage, when you have stuff like Renesix and Teferi, and those are giving you cards back and doing a bunch of other things. And when it comes to pure card advantage, you have the one ring that just overwhelms everything else. It's really hard to find room for a small ball incremental card advantage card, which is part of why you really don't see something like expensive iteration in four color anymore. I think if you want something like that, maybe this is the go-to option now, but I just don't know if you're in the market for anything like that anymore. Yeah, I... This is the like same premise as like people arguing about expressive iteration being a card of the past. This was the the Jesse Robkins argument from a few weeks ago about uh, does Breach even want this card that is a two for one when everything else involved is like an eighty for one? Like what what are we even trying to add to here? Well, I think Breach and then maybe also Four Color were kind of bad iteration decks to begin with, and now I think we've reached the part of the curve where now we went from at the Strixhaven release nobody except for you as i recall was that high on iteration to oh wow this card is busted we'll just play it in every deck and it's going to get banned in legacy and so on and now i think we're kind of over the other side of the curve where actually yeah people are realizing there are stricter requirements to iteration than people are giving you credit for and actually you should consider shaving some or even cutting them all together from your deck where it's just been there as a lock for the past two years uh yeah i mean some of that may also just be the like reasons to play colors other than blue and red and then people are just like oh let's uh maybe switch that up Mm -hmm. what other stuff uh caught your eye here there's a bunch of weirdo combo cards which we'll touch on quickly but uh anything else that you uh noted down yeah i mean i'll get my big one out of the way i think that there is going to be a two to three week adjustment period in standard to the end existing that card is messed up uh I don't think people really have internalized how... So, there, there is always this thing where people are like, Cranial Extraction is overrated. It is. It's not overrated when it doesn't cost you a lot of mana to, like, integrate to something else that is relevant. So, like, the end is... uh This is the two black-black instant uh Exile Target Creature or Planeswalker, and then Onward Ego, the rest of their copies of it. And then it costs two less to play if you are at five or less life. But, like... I don't really understand how, like, the Demir deck, as it's constructed in Standard, expects to win a game against a mirror match where your opponent has, like, three of these and you don't. And there are obviously a lot of cards in Standard that are, um, like, ways to play around this, but, like, I 
like you have to be dedicatedly moving towards the direction of like wedding announcements. And I think that a lot of the first couple of weeks of standard are just going to be that exact reaction of like, oh crap, we need to move back to like our breach of the multiverses and we have to move back to our wedding announcements. We cannot just be like playing these mid range mirrors where my opponent has exhaled all my shouldreds and all my like, I don't know, choose a random planeswalkers on turn seven and like all of a sudden I'm just playing with the dregs of my deck. Yeah, I, I mean, Esper Control is already one of the, the top decks in Standard and a very natural home for this card. And it's also the kind of uh, matchup where you you need to have this end game in mind of how you're going to win some 10 or 11 turn game. And so, yeah, if your one of your premier threats gets ended on turn five or something, well, you're not going to have any copies of that to, to dig for uh, in, in a few turns from now. So, certainly as a theoretical possibility you have to respect this in deck building and then i think as an actual possibility too so for example if you're doing any like reanimator attracts a atali stuff I, I don't think you can be all in on any one threat anymore or you know you need to have a plan with your domain deck of okay well my all of my attractors are gone and so I guess I need this herd migration to go the distance or something. Like you, you need to work through these possibilities and have a more diverse spread of, of endgame options there. Um, and then, yeah, I think just as a, you know, Vraska's contempt or whatever is, is going to do the job there as well. So I, I think in a standard context, certainly I've seen some discussion in Pioneer of, well, hey, against Mono Green, what if I just take all their cards? Or what if I, you know, this, answers Cavalier of Thorns and then any other Cavalier of Thorns as well. Exiling there is a big deal. And like, yeah, all of that is fine. It's still a four-cost removal spell. And if you're behind and you're banking on this, you are just going to get run over anyway. Uh, so I wouldn't put too much stock in that there. But certainly in standard, I, I think this is going to impact deck building in quite a big way, even if it's not immediately obvious how that is. I still really like it in Pioneer, mostly because I think there are ways to in that format, play a small number of copies and leverage casting it multiple times with, like, a Torrential Gear Hulk or wherever. I haven't quite figured out the exact details of, like, the best way to do that, but I, I do think the scenario is where, like, you are just not playing with Karns and Cavaliers on turn 15 against Blue-Black and you don't know how to win the game. I think those are very real. Like, if you go down the list of Pioneer decks, it's like, okay, well, um, I can't win without Mayhem Devil in my sack deck, so I can, like, never cast this until I cast a Witch's Oven, which totally fair and a totally reasonable way to play around this card is to have like some way to sacrifice the target um the grease fang deck just has like one shot at a grease fang that's it like i i think it is much higher impact than you think and again you don't have to play the full four copies you can just accept that like oh i have two to three slots for my like stupid void ren style removal spell and this is the best one so it's just going to be in my deck yeah i think certainly in the nasif style blue black control deck where you you want a card like this you can maybe uh cast it several times and also you don't have stuff like supreme verdict or the wandering emperor competing with this as a four drop then yeah i think that's a a natural home there and in these control mirrors as well like if you if you find a window to end their uh five mana to fairy or whatever that just might be the game right there like even if it doesn't officially run them out of win conditions it might leave them just so far behind that effectively you've won even if it's going to take eight turns to finish a deal which if you are exactly the safe playing your control deck might be a problem but uh yeah you, you can figure it out i mean mirex is the future right that's the joke i i guess i mean look in pioneer you have hall of storm giants you have any number of different castles like castle ardenvale just 
is a Mirex already, basically. So I, I don't know. That, that stuff has always been there, uh, but maybe gets even more important now. Yeah. Um, that was my big one from the rest of them. I mean, I'll. do you think Brave the Wild is going to save Jeskai Ascendancy? Wait, what, what is this card again? This is the uh, the bargain search up a land for one, but if you bargained it, it turns a land into a 3-3 permanently. It's a it's a way to search up a land, and it's a spell, and it's also a creature. Yeah. Mm, no, I mean, I, I would love a 7 to okay. come back, but uh, this, this, this ain't it, uh, I can tell you. Uh, okay. Let's talk about Blossoming Tortoise real quick. So this is a weirdo, because in the context of some hypothetical standard green midrange deck although not sure why we're playing the color green and standard but eh, we'll, we'll get back to that maybe uh, at a future date like this is kind of an embarrassing midrange card when you think about all the other things you could be doing and you carry that forward to pioneer and it's an even more embarrassing midrange card but if you look at this just as a combo card then you you start to see uh, the, the possibilities involved here uh is the possibility the modern one or what's the what's going on in pioneer before we get to that Oh, so this is just uh, the latest candidate for those uh, flex slots in Monogreen Devotion. So the Tortoise again, uh, 2 GG for a 3-3. When it ETPs or attacks, you mill three cards and then return a land from your graveyard to the battlefield tapped. Uh, land creatures you control get plus one, plus one. But activated abilities of lands you control cost one less to activate. So you, you get to double dip here with a lot of the creature lands. So Lair of the Hydra, for example, where it costs one less to activate and then... Once it is activated, it gets bigger. So you basically plus you plus two your layer of the Hydra for each tortoise you have. Um, so let's say you have just forest layer once uh, once you cast this. Well, you now get to activate the layer in the first place because instead of zero, it's now being activated for one. And then it's going to be a two-two. So you've, you've made a mutable out of what was going to be a blank card otherwise. But the, the main appeal here, of course, is with Nykthos, where you're, you're making that cost one mana to activate instead. And... On your combo turns with Mono Green, you often are using the same Nykthos multiple times thanks to Kiora, or you are using the first Nykthos and then Cavaliering or Storming into another Nykthos, and so you get to unlock this discount multiple times potentially, and so it might really rejig some of the combo thresholds for what you need to actually keep going. And when you have low devotion or you, d you don't have much mana to work with, the fact that you, you know, the, the next Nykthos activation that you need costs less might actually be the difference between I can't take any more game actions this turn and I can cast the next thing that lets me survive this turn and then keep going on the next one. So it's a lot to ask for four mana um, and there are so many other cards competing for those slots as well. But Bobby's going to try this. I mean, Bobby has tried worse cards than this that also are not green in his mono green devotion deck. So I, this one is going to get uh, an audition at some point, I would bet. Yeah, I, I guess the best way to view it is that it's a, it actually adds three green devotion because it nets a mana on each Nyctos activation, but it does it in the best possible way where you're netting it up front on the activation. Yeah. Uh, I guess other quick yeah. hits, uh, if we want to move whoa, on. Whoa, from whoa, that. You, oh. We missed the modern application to this card. There is, oh, a, there's an actual infinite combo with this card. Oh, oh God. What, what's that? It's just Lava Claw Reaches. So th this okay, is the uh, okay. the black red. This yeah. is the black red creature yeah. line from World Wake. It's a uh, yep. One black red uh, animates to become a two two, and that a creature has the ability X. This gets plus X plus zero until end of turn. So if you just activate it and then you just pay, you know, one reduced by one to zero, it just gets plus one plus zero. So this this just makes an infinite power lava claw reaches immediately, mm -hmm. as long as you activate it. 
Yeah, I think... I, I just wanted to point that out. I think even given that, Lava Claw Reach is still one of the worst of the original cycle, but, you know, nice to think about at least. Uh, in any case, moving I, on... There's potential. There's potential. <laughs> Look, people will make content around that idea, and I'm here for that, at the very least. Um, let's touch on... Uh, Flicker Coin is one which could easily go under the radar. This is the three-mana instant. Uh, so two and a red, you shoot any target for one, you create a treasure token, and you draw a card. This is actually a surprisingly good uh, creativity setup card, I think, because we, we've we seen some lists where, like, just the worst dregs of your last uh, Midnight Hunt draft deck are coming out to play against, like Startle or is it Flip the Switch or the Counterspell that makes a Decay 2-2. And, like, this is a pretty sizable yep. upgrade if you just want a good single creativity target. Like, you ear to this... You, you maybe shoot down an Elvish Mystic or something along the way. You get a treasure, you draw a card. Like, if, if you want something in that exact role, this is a, a good one for it. And then also, if anyone's brave enough to do the, like, Vadrock combo stuff as well, then maybe this is uh, <laughs> this fits in there. I mean, it may also just be this is another step in the direction of not needing blue cards in your creativity deck. I mean, like, yeah, like, maybe you still want Impulse and Make Disappear or whatever, but, like, just like adding more reasonable cards that filter through other cards and add to your creativity count, like that's a, that's a reasonably big deal. There were the like black red list that had, uh, oh gosh, what I it's not Sovereign's Bite. What was the stupid Vampire's Kiss or something that made a blood token or whatever? Well, there's there's Vampire's Vengeance, like the Coastlex Return that makes the blood, and then there's also yeah, Vampire's something else which. Vampire's Kiss. Yeah. It makes two blood tokens and drains two. Yep. Mm. Yeah. So I'm not saying that this is like letting you put that card back in your deck. I think it's just letting you make non-blue versions of creativity that don't have that card in them. Well, it's also that, I mean, if you're in blue, there's, yeah, you have Prismari Command or whatever, which I actually don't know in the head-to-head which you would rather have a lot of the time, but there'll be a lot of spots, I think, where you you just actively want this one instead. Um, But also... There's a big difference between three and four, so stuff like Big Skull or whatever. And then I've been pushing for a while for these single target creativity lists, whether it's Double Wallspine Worm or Attraxa or something. And this is this is a, a nice setup card for that in particular. So I, I don't know. Yeah, you can venture outside of blue specifically more easily now, but even in blue red, I think this is this is worth a look. Is there value in being mono red and just having Dwarven Mine in your deck as a four X? Dwarven Mine just kind of sucks, though. It's a problem. Like the one of the big draws to being a monocolor deck in these larger formats is there are so many cool utility lands you can play. Whether it's Mirex, as you mentioned, Mutavolt, Sokenzan, uh, Den of the Bugbear. Like even in mono red, there are more good utility lands than you could possibly hope to play. And Dwarven Mine means you get to play zero of those, and I think that is uh, too big a cost. Okay, fair enough. Uh, just putting that out there, you know, it is the first thing that comes to mind when you talk about creativity to people who are not, like, not continuing fans of the Pioneer list to keep up with every single card that ends up in them. Yes. Uh, one reprint, which I think it's safe to say will show up, is Sleight of Hand. So, in a world where we now have Consider and so on, like, this maybe is less exciting. I think a lot of the blue combo decks would start with for Consider, for Opt, or if you're the Neoform deck, maybe your gazes uh, take pride of place there and you never actually get around to sleight of hand. But the one obvious application would be in Phoenix, where now that you have the 12 one-mana cantrips, I don't know if you 
start to compete with like pieces of the puzzle or trial of course or it's kind of hard to play the 412 and these other card draw spells and treasure crews without having a third of your deck just be these card manipulation spells that are spinning your tires so something has to give there but i think there's room now for a leaner approach to phoenix where like yeah you are pretty consistently bringing back phoenix on turn three if you want to or your treasure cruise is almost always costing one mana by the time you get to turn three turn four without having to take a turn off casting pieces in the meantime or maybe finale of promise is back on the table again or things that care about like casting spells and they trigger when you do that like it just having this density of those effects um opens up possibilities that didn't i guess they existed before but maybe they weren't good before i guess one card that uh is worth noting just for how unique it is in context is the iron crag so this is a two mana legendary artifact it taps make colorless and then if a legend comes into play it becomes some equipment with new names new abilities or whatever but but basically the upside here is this is the first two mana mana rock in the entire pioneer format i think the first one since Everflowing chalice which is 13 years ago at this point like literally too old to be in the pioneer card pool so if your metalwork colossus deck or something really needs a a guardian idol well now you have one yeah yeah i i for some reason am like you know i know bobby has already said that he wants to try this in mono green as like another willful haven i'm not enthralled with that it's cool that this exists i kind of almost like the other two mana artifact in the set a little better and that's the collector's vault it's the, mm. the two-man artifact that's uh, two-tap to loot and make a treasure. I think that just, like, the the combo of, like, looting and mana battery is something that in, like, some of the ramp shells may actually be somewhat powerful or more powerful than expected. Even if it does cost maybe, a million mana. Maybe in some kind of reanimated deck in, in a smaller format, too, where you, yeah. you have enough time to be churning through this. You want the loop ability to loot away cards, but you also can just work towards casting your Atali or something in a few turns. Yeah, I mean, they banned Fable. You don't get to play with that one in standard. This mm. is the worst Fable I've ever seen, but it's doing 40% of the work. Uh, one uh, cool combo card, which I'm definitely going to build decks around, unclear how good they're going to be, is uh, Agatha's Soul Cauldron. So uh, bring up the exact text on this one, because it is, it is important. Um, so this is a two-mana legendary artifact, where you you can spend mana as though it were any color to activate abilities of creatures you control. Uh, creatures you control with plus one plus one counters of them have all activated abilities of the creatures exiled with this card. And then the thing that lets you do that is tap exile target card from a graveyard. When a creature card is exiled this way, put a plus one plus one counter on target creature you control. So one application which you don't play it for this, but it's really nice to have is this is just main deckable graveyard hate if this is a thing your deck is built around already, um, which can buy you enough time to find the creatures which let you do whatever cool thing you're you're working towards here. This is the strangest unlicensed hearse of all time. It, it really is, yeah. Um, and I think you, your random mid-range deck that wanted unlicensed hearse, you can't just switch to this unless you have other things to be doing. But for example, let's say you're playing some black red mid-range deck black red sacrifice deck and pioneer and you had some purses in your sideboard because that's your graveyard hater choice if you think you can switch to this well you're going to end up in these weird games where suddenly you turn your other creature in play into your blood tithe harvester that just died and now it's bigger and also sacrificing to help finish off something else and now that's in your graveyard too so you can do the same thing and like i, I don't know I, I could see cyborg soul cauldron decks where 
in the post cyborg games you sometimes just do weird things your deck would never be able to do otherwise yeah this is literally just a card that as far as i can tell exists like the primary purpose of this card is to talk about all the cool things you can do with it when like (laughs) aside from being under like unlicensed hearse or copying a gristle brand like that's just what happens with it like i literally was just like out eating pizza the other day and a table sat down behind us and started talking about Agatha's Soul Cauldron. I'm not even joking. <laughs> not even remotely close to a magic store. This is just the kind of thing this card evokes. That's just what happens when you're in the, the DC area? That I think that's just what happens with this card in places. I don't really know how to describe what happened, but it happened. <laughs> did, did they have any especially inventive uh, uses that came to mind that you can steal and appropriate as your own? No, they, as everyone has done with this card, they just start naming cards with activated abilities that you can exile with it. Because that's just what happens. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I want to use this with Walking Ballista as much as the next guy, but am I doing that in my scales deck that I, I guess it has Ravager 2, so maybe there's something there? Or, uh, like, am I playing this in some weirdo Yorgmoth or Hidia deck where this, like, if you have, if this exiles a Yorgmoth and you have, let me see, so you need and un- do you need two undying creatures or just one? E- either way, you can like replicate the function of having a Yorgmoth in play once it's in your graveyard with this card, but then you can also turn your creatures into Grist, and then like anything with a counter can use the loyalty abilities of Grist, uh, which is very strange, but it-, it does work within the rules. And then you could have some Heliod cell deck where this can be a Spike Feeder or a Ranger Captain or a Walking Blister, and then... There are other creature combos too, like this. I, this doesn't actually work the way you want it to with Devoted Druid, right? Because uh, you put a plus, you it, you put the minus one minus one on it, and then it cancels out, and it doesn't have the plus one plus one anymore. Uh, that is generally correct. That is not what you want to do. But okay, you could so. also like just granting the untap of. Mm, so, okay, so you make... No, this doesn't work. There's Don't worry about it. There's no meat on that bone. It does not work. Okay, the, the annual round of uh, Devoted Druid Copium will have to wait a little while longer, I guess. Uh, but yeah, either way, a lot of cool things you can do with this card. And yeah, if you, uh, like me, wish Grizzlebrand was a playable magic card, you can build some very weird Grizzlebrand deck with like this and Stitcher Supplier and whatever good cheap looters there are maybe like i I don't know you you can figure something out maybe yeah there's a lot of maybe involved i mean you could give your allosaurus rider the crystal brand ability that's clearly what is going to happen you you sure could yeah if your uh up the beanstalk neoform deck doesn't work out then maybe you have to pivot to this instead yeah i listen i am just here to make uh ari zax spend more of his time spinning the gristle brand wheels as opposed to anything else i don't think any further incentives were needed there but uh can't, can't hurt for sure yeah yeah uh what about uh, a different weird combo card in beseech the mirror i mean i guess this is the the good uses of this card feel relatively solved it's largely just like chaining through vault of whispers into like gaia's wills in legacy is what it sounds like is happening um this is the uh one triple black tutor, and if you uh, bargain it, you get to cast the card for free if it costs four or less. But really what's happening is you just, like, bargain it, and then you cast Guy's Will. This is the uh, green suspend card that's just Yogmoth's Will. You cast it from your deck, and you, you just tutored up Yogg Will, and then 
you cast this from your graveyard and then you cast tendrils and then your opponent dies. Yeah, or if you have drawn the Geyser Bill, you can get Asphatold and then cast the Geyser Bill for free and then and then go from there. So we are bearing the lead here. This is the card which might actually have the highest chance of seeing play in a larger format a year or two from now. Um, also could just fall flat on its face. And th this is the kind of thing which you you put these quite careful safeguards on and you want it to look dangerous but not be dangerous. And that, that might be where this card ends up ultimately. But yeah, this is one and triple black. Uh, it has bargain, so you can sacrifice an artifact, enchantment, or a token as you cast this. And then this is essentially Diabolic Tutor. So you search for any card, put it into your hand. But then if you bargained it and the CMC of that card was four or less, you get to cast it. So worth noting, you can well, you, you can cast this and just find something more expensive if you really need some expensive tutor. But then also, of course, the thing you want to be doing is training these together or putting some like weird elaborate combo turn together. And that's where people's attention is focused. Yeah, I, I'm reading the text on this card and I don't know if it ever matters, but technically it like exiles the card and then you cast it from exile if you bargained it and then you put it into your hand if you didn't and like i i oh. that's just a lot of moving zones it oh ha, yeah ha, how's your how's your rules knowledge Ari? How, how's that judge certification uh it's very very lapsed i don't think i've judged an event since they had uh oh gosh okay anyways about 15 years it's been a while Okay, either way. So, question for you, and listeners can play along at home. What happens if you cast this card and your opponent controls an opposition agent? Uh... Judges have complained about opposition agent not working. My 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 official statement is that I have seen judges complain about opposition agent not working, so I just assume this is another case where you pretend it does. Yeah, I, I want to say it was uh, Hoarding Broodlord which caused the initial wave of these questions. And uh, since then, you know, the, the Isaac Kings of the world have been on this beat since then. It's like, there are a lot of these corner cases where I'm not sure how the rules actually work and it seems to be purely vibes. Uh, I, Commander does that to you, you know? It's just really, anytime you make a Commander card, it just happens. In any case, uh, things you want to be doing with this card when the opponent doesn't control Opposition Agent could include, for example, um, so we, we mentioned Guy's Will. You can also use it with any of the other zero-cost suspend cards. So that's not going to replace your your usual like Crashing Footfalls or Living End setup, although maybe there's some weirdo mono-black Living End build you can make now with like Citrus Supplier, Orcish Bowmasters, just whatever creatures you want now that you're not bound by the, the mana value restriction. And then, am, am I going to have to be the one who brings up? Uh, no, no, whoa, whoa! I did you not think about the replenish with this? Am I the one who thought about it and you didn't? <laughs> what changed? I mean, I, I'm I, I'm certainly down to be replenishing with this. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Just checking. I, I don't know what I'm replenishing back yet, but that that will take care of itself uh, at some point. Um, so you can do that, and then in. Certainly in Legacy, but also in Modern, you can use this in the Oops All Spells deck, where you, you play this just as more copies of Balustrade Spy, essentially, or as Goblin Charbelcher, um, which, if you're a dedicated Charbelcher deck, you can be doing that too, and that's maybe more appealing in Legacy, where you have the you have the fast mana to work with, you have, I guess not in Oops, but you have like the artifact lands, and you have you have ways to make the bargain part more trivial, in modern, it's, it's difficult. So in the stock oops decks, you have to 
play like uh, Pentaprism, maybe some more Talismans. I don't know how you even increase the count of those further, but maybe there's a way you can do that. But if you can bargain this reliably, then that's another way to kind of artificially inflate the redundancy on your combo. You could maybe go down the Strike It Rich road. And also it looks like, I guess, if you're playing the Sword of the Meek kill, that might get you somewhere. <laughs> Finally, Sword of the Meek has some some other application in there. Yeah, uh, I, I could see it. That, that, that could work. Yeah, it gets sacrificed to a different effect than usual. Hear me out here. What if there's some, like, Thorp to Sword deck, just some fair deck, that's black heavy, and you can Beseech for Urza when it comes to that, or you can Beseech for something else. Like, I don't know, Khan the Great Creator, or I, fill in the blank. Someone else fill in the blank for me. I'm too lazy here. I don't think that's better than just playing a good card that costs, like, okay, so how many of the One Rings are in your deck, and how many, like, like, you could just play, like, four Urza, four Karn, four the One Ring, and you're already there. I could, or I could play like one Urza, four Beseech, and then have more copies of all of those, technically. I, I Probably not, but I, I don't know. This is where my mind goes sometimes. That's fair, that's fair. I, I think that that is a big problem with this card, is that uh, there are so many good four drops that the gap between like the best one and the third best one that you could play instead is not big enough to really matter. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the issue in modern, is that like, yeah, I guess you can play a Mishra's Bauble or something and then sacrifice it, but in Legacy, it's just so easy, right? Or even in Vintage, where, yeah, you, you're, uh, like, there are these artifact-heavy black storm decks already that have Vault of Whispers, Whistler Talisman, Chrome Marks, Mox Opal, Dark Ritual. Like, you you can get there trivially if you want to uh, in that format. And also, the payoffs are so good that you actually want to do that. So even if you're not going through Guy's Will or something, like, you, you play out your hand, you play Beseech, and then some of the usual combo enthusiasts have laid out the different lines, but even just something like get Envy the Warrens and cast it for 10 goblins on turn one or something. Not as reliable as it was in 2006, but still pretty good most of the time. Or you play this and then with enough setup, like if you have, I think it's two or three other artifacts, you can just go straight to tendrils for 10 just by looping beseeches with the guys will and so on. Uh, so like the, the tools are there to really just go off with this. Um, I mean, in Vintage, you can beseech for any of, like, Doomsday, Necropotence, Tinker, actual Yorgmos Will, or Underworld Breach. Uh, like, the once you get to casting this, like, oh, that's the hard part. Winning the game from there is, is easy. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is three other zeros, but like you said, Chromox just does so much work in that exact setup. And again, just another reason we can't have that kind of terrible, nice thing in Modern. Yeah, probably. I mean, what was the worst that could happen if they give us Mark Zobel back? Uh, I refuse to answer that question without starting a different topic. It's a lot worse than this, probably. But uh, I've also seen people note that this is one of many magic cards that is nice with Orcish Bowmasters. Uh, you sac- yes, it does sacrifice the token. That is adorable. Yes. So in my hypothetical uh, Thought to Sword Besiege deck, like... I play Bowmaster, I bring back my Sword of the Meek, and then I deadly dispute something, maybe? I mean, deadly dispute with this is kind of nice, too. I don't know how often you're, like, Knight's Whisper, Diabolic Tutoring in 2023. That just, that feels like a very outmoded style of magic. I remember when certain pundits said Diabolic Intent was broken and was going to have to be banned in multiple formats, and uh, that hasn't happened yet, but uh, give that one time, I suppose. Uh, Yeah, that card is, in fact, in the format, and I completely forgot about it for a long time. Yeah. 
Anything else from this set or related nonsense before we move on to our actual nonsense of the week and maybe our discourse of the week too? Not. I do want to quickly rant about how much I hate the design of Talion. This is the card where like you choose a number and then depending on like when like one of six different things your opponent has like whenever they play a card with you know mana value or toughness or power or like syllables in the name with that number you draw a card i just like really despise the idea of like having to peruse every single stock deck list for every single permutation of like what not i don't know i just i don't want to have to like i don't think that that's a fun meta argument about like like figuring out like if this card is playable what number you should name like i think that with like chalice of the void it's very easy to think about like one thing but as soon as you like cross the streams across like eight different things i think it just like opens up more chances for feel bads of like oh gosh i didn't like i don't know i i don't really like that like there's a level of depth about these things for like the marginal impact it provides that is fun and interesting and this card i think surpasses that now i'm wishing they had gone full infinity with it and started making you look for the number of vowels in the name or uh the actual number of the, you know, the, uh, the collector's number or whatever. Like, really just go ham and make people think about things they've never had to in uh, in Blackboard and Magic before. Yeah, and, like, it's also, I don't know, it's choose a number between 1 and 10. Why 10? Like, is there, am I missing a flavor reason to not let you choose a number bigger than 10? Uh, I, I'm no uh, lawmaster here, but I probably not. Like, that, that might just be for convenience, if nothing else. Yep. Okay. That's all I got. That's the my that's my last thing to say about this set for now, and we will see what happens once it actually releases. Okay. Uh. So some quick uh discourse of the week, which I had intended to carve out some time for last week, but back when we were going to have an episode last week, but we we can catch up on it now very briefly. So there was this whole uh hullabaloo around this scenario, which I forget the actual context, like what tournament it occurred at, and uh and so on. But the the whole creativity where oh, my creativity hits actually in my sideboard, oh, and what's, yeah. the, what's the correct fix for this? The actual details are less important than the uh, the debate that was sparked by that. I know you had some strong takes that you were itching to share at the time. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there are there's exactly two things that I am fairly passionate about on this. Uh, one, I think, is that the general idea of, like, we would like players to want to call a judge on themselves and resolve scenarios is a very good thing and a good direction for the game to have taken. Um, I think that the fix that even within this rule set that applies of like, oh, you have realized this after the creativity has finished resolving the reveal all the cards in your library part. So we're just going to shuffle them in and you can move on having resolved creativity with nothing in play. I think that that's like a very reasonable uh, within the spirit of the rules and within the like realm of like what you are trying to do thing. I think that the one of the problems there is that uh, one of the best things the Magic Rules has ever done is standardize the results of actions, uh, which happened probably late 2000s, early 2010s was really when they made the shift to like, we aren't going to have judges sit there and assess if they feel like fixing the game state before giving you a game loss. Um, and just like there's a clear fix. I think that the unclarity of some of the rules around like backups and like these like portion fixes is creating a lot more scenarios where there are not necessarily opinion differences, but just 
reading of the rules differences that are problematic that should probably be patched up. Um, but also, I don't really understand how you have the rule where the person gets their worm and their Xenagos if they could also just, like, miss the Xenagos trigger. I just, I don't understand how those, like, those, those are just two completely incongruent states of game rules to have exist next to each other. Just really baffling. I, I'm now imagining, like, the, the perfect ending to this, this bit where after this 25 minute judge call about what the resolution is, so much has happened that the creativity player just forgets to trigger the Xenagos and, like, passes the turn or something and then still loses anyway. Just tries to full on, uh, top four of the PT declare attack with the worm. I, I'm less curious about this exact example and more about what it says about just how policy evolves or gets changed over time because this brought, I think, Toby Elliott out of the woodwork saying, yeah, we know that we haven't had an IPG fix or update since Ikoria or whenever it was now. Uh, that is coming, but it's not the kind of fix which is going to address any kind of problem like this or, or most hypothetical problems. It's mostly a little bit of house cleaning that feels overdue, which... like. Something like this is not going to happen the vast majority of the time, but you would hope that the IPG somewhere would cover that kind of contingency with a little more care than it seems to right now. I mean, do you know how long you got game losses for morphs after Konzatark here was released? Because I sure oh, do. Oh, I bet you do. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, I... I think that there is always going to be some amount of the rules, like doing their best to play ahead of the cards and then catching up when something happens. And this is just one of those cases, and that's fine. We have thrown around the idea and had the idea to address it to us of uh, just a, a, an episode either with judges or about judging or just the rules of magic as a whole, because e even though we're focused mainly on the strategy of the game and, and so on, like this is an integral part of tournament magic and something which, if you are playing competitively, is going to come up. So I think that episode is overdue and maybe this is the kind of uh, fun question we can ask uh, as and when that happens. The other topic of last week, which uh, this one has blown over, but it will be back, Ari, because it always is in the end, is deck names, of course. Uh, the, uh, the the one that really got people going lately, naturally, was uh, Raggers Evoke or Raggers Scam, whichever you prefer. Um, but then, as always, this spiraled into a larger discussion about just how tolerant should we be about these weirdo deck names what is the job of a deck name is it to be mainly descriptive or evocative uh it, the irony was not lost on me that rados evoke is one of the least evocative deck names that you could come up with uh like what is the job of a deck name and how well are these individual examples doing that and i don't think anyone acquitted themselves well in this discussion or really had that much fun but uh, it, it sure was a thing that happened <laughs> yeah i i think the problem here is that like Rakdos scam is both like a problematic trend and totally reasonable and fine and understandable. Like if you laid out a dozen modern decks and asked someone which one was Rakdos scam, they would be able to tell which one. Like it's just very obvious. Like you don't just on vibes and the word Rakdos, you would know which one it is. Whereas like I, you know, you could just lay out every legacy deck and ask someone who doesn't know the format which one is death and taxes and they just be like, I, I don't know, man. They, they point it like, Maverick, and you'd just be like, no, that one's Maverick, and you'd be like, I, just stop making it up, please just let me leave. Yeah, I, we... I think that there, <laughs> I, I don't know what the line is. I appreciate the discussion of like, it's very clear that this trend creates some bad situations, but it's also very clear that Rakdos game is totally fine and everyone knows what you're talking about. Yeah, we don't need to go to the legacy extreme of 
this was an in-joke and not really a funny one in Columbus in 2003, and that's just still what the deck's called. Luckily, most of the legacy decks that are guilty of that weren't that great at the time and are solidly unplayable now, and so the issue just doesn't arise in the same way, with, I guess, the arguable exception of the Epic Storm, but in that one, I'm going to say, let Brian cook. Just just let, it, let him do his thing, okay? Um, but yeah, I mean, but broadly, there are... Either extreme is bad, you want to find some kind of happy medium. To me, though, stuff like Ragdos Evoke is kind of putting the border up the hill and just challenging the nature of how language works, where, yeah, sometimes names seem arbitrary or they seem weird, but basically any name is once you really drill down into it. And the best argument for a deck name past a certain point is that is its name. That is what people called it. Like, that is just what language is. Um, and this gets filtered through the medium all the time of hypothetical conversations or at some examples were given of actual conversations but you, you can quibble with the specifics there too of like well if some new player were uh asking or were curious about this deck they, they hear the name uh they're confused and now because they're so confused uh they they quit magic and they're never seen at the lgs again to me like th this player if they have never seen uh, the the scam deck before, and they are not familiar with modern as a whole. Maybe they've taken a break from the game, and MH2 as a as a concept is foreign to them. Then, like the name Rados Evoke and the name Rados Scam require exactly the same length of explanation. Like if I hear Rados Evoke, am I thinking this is the Spite Bellows deck that Dragon Fodder like one threes every prelim with? No, is it something else? Even if I know the Evoke mechanic from Lauren back in the day, well, which are the Evoke cards that have that now and okay, well, yeah, Fury has a vote, but a lot of decks play Fury. Like, why is this one special? Why does it get named that? The follow-up questions that you have last exactly the same length of time as just saying, yeah, the deck's called Scam because you try and, like, cheese wins with these one powerful one-card or two-card combinations. Easy. That's a, a one-sentence pitch, which summarizes the vibe and the philosophy of the deck very well. Whereas Radis Evoke, in this attempt to be more descriptive, it, it makes the trade-off of being less evocative but I think it's also not more descriptive unless you are like one exact hypothetical consumer who I'm not convinced actually exists once you draw down into it that far. Yeah, it's very weird that they chose Rakdos Evoke over Rakdos Elementals when like, I guess technically Evoke is the mechanic, but like if you just like don't really know what the cards do, you would kind of look at them and be like, oh, those are the Elementals. Those are the cards I should pay attention to. I don't Whatever. I guess it's not an Elementals deck. I don't know. Just call it Scam. I mean, hey, it's fine. R Rados Elementals could also be the Dragon Fodder Lightning Elemental deck. So the, the, the confusion persists. Oh, <laughs> no, no, gosh. Oh, you win again. You are correct. There is actually Rakdos Elementals. Okay, not that one. Yes. It, I guess I know no. Yeah. It, it doesn't persist in the sense of persisting your Lightning Elemental because that, that's not a good idea. Don't try and do that. But you, you, you see where I'm going with this. Um, but the, the thing that really gets my goat is... In the context of Rakdos Scam, the, the argument that got made is, well, the word scam has a negative connotation and Wizards doesn't want that uh, being associated with the game. They don't want people to think of magic as being the scam. And it's like, how little credit do you give any other human being you meet? And, and also, who is, who is doing this associating? Who is the connoteur or the connoteer? Like, who, who is the person who sees a deck name called Rakdos Scam and thinks, oh, well, I... Previously, I bought into the concept of magic, but now I the, the 
scales have dropped from my eyes and my my love for magic and my you know my my entire attachment to capitalism is withering on the vine like th- this person doesn't exist either like can we stop inventing someone to get mad on behalf of as if this justifies what you wanted to do anyway when any actual human being you meet in the wild is going to have no problem thinking oh yeah this describes a play style has no reflection at all on people who play scam on the modern format on magic as a card game on wizards as a company the people who make magic all of those people are i I have the same opinions i had before but i now know the details of one deck name a little better that is the person who actually exists and i think people who actually exist are the ones whose (laughs) interest should be catered towards and maybe they quit to play Pioneer. Who knows? Or Lorcana or something <laughs> else. Yeah, lots of good options out there. But yeah, clearly. Yes. In any case, yeah. I think <laughs> enough uh, virtual ink spilled on that. Let's get into our results and our nonsense of the week, which once again have dovetailed very nicely thanks to the one and only uh, Gurig, who may be a more perverted Amulet pervert than I am myself, uh, if these results are any indication. Yeah, I mean, we've had this debate, the debate about whether it's 60 or 61 or sometimes sideboarding up to 63 cards in Amulet, but have you considered just playing 56? Well, so so now, I, what if the the synthesis here is I play 65, but it's functionally 61 because I have my four street race, so it's uh, fudging the numbers there. This is definitely brainworms. It could be, but what if it's not? We, we, we have to consider that possibility. I guess you are allowed to try it, uh, you know, as long as it doesn't overlap with your attempt to win a third vintage challenge in a row. Yes, uh, which sadly fell at the final hurdle there, but I'll I'll be back, I'm sure. Um, But so this is the same Gurig who has previously won a modern challenge this year with uh, Amulet Titan Brackets Kahira. No Titans there, false advertising, just a Cultivated Colossus combo deck. And that is somehow not the most arranged amulet list that they have uh, won a modern challenge with in the past few months so uh I- i'm not sure if they should be the ultimate authority if they wrote some amulet bible in japanese i would do my best to to read it and try to understand it in every sense of the word but uh someone whose results are always uh, fascinating to follow yeah this list is it's just amulet with four street wraith that's really all there is to it it's just very bizarre Yes, uh, and also the silences in the sideboard, which we should not uh, gloss over. So, silence, back in the day, this was a pretty flexible uh, all-purpose tool for these combo decks against, firstly, other combo decks, but then also decks trying to fight those decks uh, on the sack. And so now you have those uses, but you also have its application against other Cascade decks. So yeah, if this is a one-mana counter spell for Living End or Footfalls, which also is a good preemptive answer against uh, subtlety is the really big one, but also, you know, force negation or, or anything else. That actually sounds pretty good to me. I'm not sure how consistently Gurig can be casting these silences just with this mana base, but the the basic concept of, what if I just play some silences? We kind of saw some of that at the, the PT and some of the creativity decks. Like that, that concept, at least, is relatively mainstream compared to what else is going on here. Well, if you have four Microsynth Garden, that's four white sources. That card does have that other activated ability. Yes. And the gardens push you in the direction of being this more linear combo deck, which is the kind of deck that would want to harness silence where it's it's good at setting you up for this one big turn and you just need the window to do that. See, I don't buy that because my biggest issue with an overload on gardens is that you just get like various forms of ancient grudge and that happens regardless of whether you cast silence or not. It does. I mean, you don't need to play into that necessarily. Um, Like... 
the, the argument against gardens of, oh, well, what if they have Force of Vega? You're just playing into that. You don't have to activate the card. Like, no one's forcing you to. But if you are playing safe around that, then, yeah, maybe those slots could be better used as something else. Like, that is a that is a fair criticism. Yeah. I mean, it's still Amulet. You still are going to get basically all the Amulet wins that you have. The, the one rings in this deck are largely... They're not... You're not, like penny pinching with your life total with one ring in this deck the way other decks are so the street wraith anti-synergy is not as bad i guess maybe the real issue is like why a street wraith in your deck in the bowmaster format where bowmaster showing up now in like hammer these days just like everywhere uh so i don't know it's also funny if you you resolve Cultivator Colossus and the spells that you're drawing are just Street Race and now you get to reroll. You get to keep gambling and see where the, uh, the roulette wheel takes you. Oh, that sounds pretty bad. <laughs> Speaking of uh, Bowmaster in Hammer, this was, we're using this as an example of just how uh, universal Bowmaster has become. But I think once you, you go through the reasoning, I think Hammer is actually a fairly natural home for it, even if it requires this whole separate splash by itself. Yeah, I mean, the you already had Hammerless that played Thoughtseize in the past, so this is just, like, another natural black card to add to your deck. Uh, it's two bodies, it's, like, interaction, it, it does a lot of really good things, um, especially, like, once you think about, like, what Forgenew does for the archetype, like, it's just a card that makes you want to have creatures going along in various games and be able to continue to contend in those games and just, like, yeah, this is a natural card that you'd want to pair there against interaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think more broadly, that pairing of Bowmasters and Saga is one that you see cropping up in various places, and I think there's actually a lot to that. So um, some of the Urza decks that have been popping up, and then, I, I, like I mentioned, I was looking at the the old-school Asmo decks, where some of those have uh, adopted Bowmaster too, and just the fact that you have this this other instant speed play, which the curve of your know, turn to... You, you play Bowmasters maybe on their turn. Turn three, you now start activating your Saga. Like, it just gives you a lot of stuff to be doing and, like, picking a fight when you want to to do that. But there are some other uh, subtle upsides as well. So, firstly, one thing about some of the Saga decks, especially if they don't have a ton of artifacts, is the first construct that you make, that can get Bowmastered sometimes, and then it's hard for the other construct to actually do anything meaningful. In that scenario, though, if they have to Bowmaster first, we've mentioned this dynamic of you want to be the one with the second Bowmaster. So you, you kind of draw out the Bowmaster with your Saga, and then you you make the other Construct. Maybe you get Springleaf Drum. You use the Drum uh, with the Construct to make mana. You play a land. You Bowmaster their Bowmaster. Now you have a pretty formidable board again um, that puts the initiative uh, back in their court. And then also... Because drum is such a big part of some of these Bowmaster decks, just having two bodies where, like, they kind of have to kill the Bowmaster, but then if they have to kill the Orc to stop you getting another mana, that's pretty good too. Like, just a lot of these little pieces uh, work together very nicely there. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it's just a very good card that does a lot of very good things. Yeah, and, and then Bowmaster in Hammer, it, it lets you play that waiting game more effectively, uh, forces them to use removal at inopportune times, which clears the way for your, your big hammer uh, finish. And then in a format where so many other people have Bowmasters, like you get to, to trump theirs again. And if if they're a deck which Bowmasters is good against, which is a bold choice right now, but there are still some of those, then great. You, you get to Bowmaster them and you're off to the races there too. So I, I think it does actually make sense in the context of hammer. 
One adaptation we've seen in some of the Hammer decks against Bowmaster is just cutting Esper Sentinel entirely, which is a bold move, like that card printing really helped to level up the deck, and against uh, your Murktide, which is having a resurgence, some of the Cascade decks, you really want to have your Sentinels, but the lineup against Bowmaster is just so bad that I, I get wanting to do that, and I've seen lists, people have messed around with different things in those slots, I've seen like Thraven Inspector as a card that survives Bowmaster, but also gets you towards Metalcraft still. Uh, and there are some other options too, but uh, that card is not a sacred cow anymore. And I think that's that's worth noting as well. I mean, the other half of this is that you are mainly looking to that slot in part because previously it was so good against the Ragavan decks. And there's just like Ragavan still exists, but it's less important in the format. Some of the blue red decks are just outright cutting it. Um, Wafo showed up with Grixis, which is a, a sign of the times, but like, not a Ragavan deck, just like there are Bowmasters and other cards in the deck. Like it's again, it it's not just uh like you don't necessarily need that exact card to be doing that exact thing. Where if your opponent plays a Ragavan on turn one and they interact with your one drop, you need to be ahead on like the whole exchange. Like you can be fine with like just losing your thing to a lightning bolt because the percentage of games that are decided by the turn one Ragavan on the play is just lower. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Uh, I know Matt Nass was streaming this Boris version that had Goblin Engineer in that like Bowmaster two-drop slot where that could set up the the Fortinue lines and he, he had that. Uh, four copies of Fortinue as the uh, secondary equipment of choice as well. Um, so I, I think he also moved away from Sentinel for exactly those reasons. So I, I think a shift you can expect to see in a lot of the, the Hammer decks uh, moving forward there. And then... Rafo just starting on all of us with various different uh, Stampcaster Mage, Flame of a Nordex, just giving hope to control mages uh, everywhere. Yeah, it's just all the typical Wafo cards, just none of them are white this time. Uh, you know, the same Archmage's Charms and Counterspells as always, Memory Deluges, but like with black and red cards instead. Um, the thing that really caught my eye buried in these results was the... Uh, the Cremator deck adding uh, Palantir of Orthanc to it, uh, I thought that was kind of nice. <laughs> that is adorable, as everything else about that deck also is. Yeah, I mean, it does not solve any fundamental issues, but it's kind of cute. I, I will note that in one of the challenges that Gurig won, he beat a more stock Amulet list in the finals, and there was another copy in top eight as well. So uh, m maybe Amulet is, is uh, the deck that should be at the forefront of people's minds, as it always should be. Uh, but it's been interesting tracking the almost return to form of the modern format, where you, you see Hammer making top eights again, Murktide is back in a big way, in part thanks to Preordain, kind of as Watsi drew it up. And there's this great trend where if you you go on the, the modern subreddit and you just look at the, the Bamsing post for all the different challenge results, you can tell exactly which challenges had like three scam decks in the top eight versus which ones had three multi decks or whatever just by the number of comments and upvotes or downvotes uh even without opening the uh the post itself oh boy it's that level of the discourse uh we'll just leave that on behind uh i'll note there was an uptick in mill the last couple of weeks uh not just tybalt of red sub but like a couple others including tulio jowdy making top eight challenges with mill uh probably somewhat of a reaction to hammer coming back um just like a good deck and people have stopped really playing the emerald for it so yeah it's free it is funny to note that tron has basically vanished entirely since its impressive performance at the pt which 
didn't come out of nowhere. Like this is just something that always seems to happen at modern PTs, but it's always very short lived. There's there's not much of a uh, of an after effect uh, in you know in the challenges and in other modern tournaments. And sure enough, you know we're at the point where. I don't know if you should even have your your charmors or whatever anymore because who are you hoping <laughs> to bore those in against now? Uh, Me, I suppose. I mean, but yeah, whatever. The, that's true. But like, also at the same time, there's some amount of the like. I don't know how much I would expect that because at the pro tour we saw the gap between like the handshake players and the non handshake players and win rates. So maybe that uh, has persisted through to other mediums where like. Uh, maybe Tron is being represented by uh, its worst representatives and not its best. Yeah, I think that has always been the case. There definitely is a like burn main problem for Tron as well. Uh, you know, whether or not they call themselves Tron is bad, like they they do their best to to make that a reality. Um, but even leaving that aside, it, it is jarring to see you know Pro Tour Lord of the Rings results and then just literally any modern tournament since then of any kind of size or or you know stature yeah and there have not been a lot of uh rhino stacks either in these results like a smattering but cascade is on the downswing yeah i I thought rhinos would be more sticky because once people at the pt both the the team list and the four color list figured out how to actually build a functional rhino stack well that's a popular archetype a, a pretty good and consistent one i thought that one would be here to say and that one it it's there, but like it's it's not making waves in the the way that you would expect. Yeah, I mean that's just the the typical fate of Cascade decks. They have a couple good weeks, they have a lot of bad weeks, they have a few good weeks back and forth. Mm-hmm. So given that, let's move on to our actual nonsense of the week. Then, uh, moving outside of the the realm of uh, modern challenge wins or vintage challenge wins and second places, uh, sadly. Uh, so. What one nonsense topic over the past fifteen years is just the entire topic of Nickfit, which is a nonsense deck name and also just a nonsense <laughs> deck. Yeah, so this deck did show up in the top eight of a legacy challenge this weekend, which got me to uh click on the results history of the Magic Online player Koike, K-O-I-K-E. Um so they top eight of this challenge with Chain of Smog uh combo Nickfit. So this is the Chain of Smog plus Witherbloom Apprentice combo where you, uh, this is the one in the black sorcery where target player discards two cards and then that player may copy it. And then Witherbloom is the Magecraft, uh, drain a life whenever you play or copy any sort of sorcery. So you just chain yourself forever and kill them. Um, this deck also like weirdly features Boromir, Warden of the Tower and like Magister of Worth. But really the kicker is going through this player's history and looking at the last, uh, like two years of Nick fit results and just seeing all the nonsense. So for a while there were Boromir Radadrabic loops in their Nick fit deck. Nice. Um, my favorite was rediscovering, uh, the initiative escape card that just exists and was in their deck various amounts of time. Oh yeah. Uh, from the catacombs. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, just if you have a chance to take a look at this player's history and just learn some cards that you forgot existed, just really a delight. Nick Fit is just, you're just playing a different game than you just kind of get the, it really is just EDH and Legacy. There's no other way to describe it. You just select a random card that costs five and it could be playable in your deck. You don't know. I, I hope this is the the Koike who top aided a PT like 15 years ago and who maybe now has found some like second life as just online uh, Nick Fit pervert. 
I mean, I have never seen as many deadly brews in decks as I have here, and I drafted that format. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to do some research to see, could it be the same person? And I, I'm coming up with like five different Takayuke Koikes. So there's one who's like a professional angler. There's one who's a competitive uh, speed cuber, <laughs> like Rubik's Cubes. Uh, and then, let's see. There's one who is like a math professor who is interested in, quote, singular Hermitian metrics of complex manifolds, whatever that means. And then there's a few more as well. But any one of these could be living a, a second life after dark as a uh, as a Nick pervert. It really could be any of them. Honestly, the way you described all of them, I would be guessing. Yes. Uh, so with that... I, I guess <laughs> the other quick nonsense is, uh, is shout out to the no-band historic format, which is just... Uh, a true fiasco. I don't want to play games, but I just want to look at deck lists on occasion and then pretend, like, forget it ever existed. But I do want to shout that out as a great source of, like, five-second nonsense clips. Yes. Uh, so people discovering firsthand just why channel is banned in every format except vintage and then restricted there, uh, just be safe because this is, I, as far as I can tell, the only playable deck in this format. Just turn to channel into... Really take your pick of any Eldrazi on the platform, or Ugin, or Khan the Great Creator, or you can do like Aetherflux Reservoir stuff to gain more life, and then spend the life, and just loop everything, and, and go nuts. And then, because this is no banners historic, uh, the Demonic Tutors on the Strixhaven Mystical Archive Street are also playable in your deck. And there's also the uh, Assemble the Team, the Alchemy Tutor in Golgari that's just look at the top third of your deck and find a card from that. Wishlord Talisman as well, so you basically channel into something humongous on turn two, on turn three, every single game. Back that up with, you know, Thoughtseize, Veil of Summer, whatever, like, that. that is the deck. Uh, there is really nothing else. I'm told that people are now branching out into, you know, Underworld Breach with Dark Ritual and stuff, like, actually putting that card through its paces as well, um, but there's just a lot of nonsense going on there. It did also spawn what may not even be the best Saffron Olive Tweet, uh, of the episode which is oh, gosh. something to the effect of yeah here we go the no ban list event on mtg arena is fun but it would be more fun if channel was banned even against all the other broken <laughs> cards channel is so busted it overshadows a lot of other cool possibilities which he's not wrong but i feel like they the whole concept probably requires a little more work if we're going to start actually banning things again <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that the humor is just letting that sit as is and continuing to play with channel. And just, I it's just, it's a, again, great tweet. Really, really top notch. Yes. So with that, I think we will leave the, the nonsense and the discourse behind for this week. Uh, plenty of all of those, uh, as always, going on in our Discord at all times. Uh, so link to that over there in the show notes. If you want to find us elsewhere, uh, you can find our columns every week. Uh, I'm at uh, SEG, Ari's at uh, CFB slash TCG player. You can find us on Twitter uh, at Dom and Javier at ARMLX. You can find the podcast there at Dominaria underscore pod or on Patreon at patreon.com slash Dominaria's underscore judgment. I were thankful to uh, Connor, our new patron, who, when I last looked at this, had two ends in there, but I think now has one. So however many ends he has... Uh, Good choice, Connor. We we welcome you here. Uh, we welcome Connors with any number of ends, you know, three, five, eight, however many. Um, we're, we're welcoming inclusive community, uh, which does love to talk about, you know, uh, I think weird Digimon fan sites is the current uh, topic of the day. 
I think it was the fact that one of the Digimon movies was later reused as a different, like a plot to a different animated film by the hmm. same director. He just stole his own idea. It, you know, things that were discussed today. Don't worry about it. <laughs> the thing about the Digimon movies is that they, they make the stakes so high. Like, it's not even, oh, you know, if you die in Pokemon, you die in the real world. This is literally, if the Digidestin don't kill uh, Evilmon, then the the entire city of Tokyo will be consumed by some cosmic sinkhole or something. Like, it, they, they really make you feel like uh, uh, your lives are on the line here. Yeah, it's really the exact opposite of Pokemon. Yes, uh, so Digimon episode uh, may be on the docket for a future week, but for now, we will let you get all uh, get out of here. We will be back with probably something else next week. We'll let you uh, know that when we do. But until then, uh, take care, everyone.